My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello and welcome to our second episode of It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast. We're your host, Cammie Ahrens. And I'm TJ Smith. And today we're going to go back to the It Still Lives record from the Foxfire label and share a little bit of the music that was recorded on the record. So before we get into the songs, I just want to talk a little bit about music in the mountains. So when we think about Appalachian music, most people immediately conjure this image of a banjo or a mountain dulcimer being played with rolling hills in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But actually, the fiddle was probably more known as the mountain uh, musical instrument or the most common musical instrument in the mountains. and the, uh, I just want to nerd out for a second. That, and <laughs> and the, the dulcimer image probably is because of Gene Ritchie. So, yeah, it so, is. <laughs> so, yeah, the folk revival movement in the 1960s, Gene Ritchie, you know, the, the singer of the Cumberlands, uh, you know, she played a mountain dulcimer. And that became, because of her sort of rise uh, in popularity at the time, that became such this iconic image for any music from the southern mountain ranges. Um, but it's, you know, there were kind of these waves of folk revivalism, um, that put Appalachia kind of in the center of, um, pop culture or, you know, this idealized image. And that was the issue with this is it was associated the musical instrument of, um, like the banjo or the dulcimer was associated with this like romanticized idea of what Appalachia was instead of actually going into the homes and learning about the communities themselves. So in the late 19th century, we start getting these romanticized ideals of Appalachia. Um, There was this notion that Appalachia was the last holdout of our Elizabethan ancestors and people were still talking in old English like Shakespeare. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Again, these were outside perceptions that were kind of describing Appalachia instead of coming from the native communities themselves. So instead of the banjo or the dulcimer being this actual instrument used in daily life in people's homes, the fiddle was the most common instrument. It was really important for community gatherings like dances, Mm -hmm. parties, any type of events. Some churches allowed fiddles. Some churches didn't allow music. Um, But it was it was really common and it came over um, probably with the Ulster Scots who settled the region. Um, and was this European instrument that they carried with them. And the, but Yeah, and both the banjo and the dulcimer, I think they arrived at about the same time, the latter part of the 19th century. Yeah, they yeah. really came into the mountains after the Civil War. Um, the banjo is a descendant of the banjar, which is B-A-N-J-A-R, which originated in West Africa and was brought over by the slaves. Um, and so after the Civil War, a lot of the freed slaves began moving north and started dispersing this type of instrument. Yep. And so they started adapting it um, primarily with gourds, which is how banjars were constructed, using the gourd as kind of the drum head. Um, and this is, a, this is a really great example, folklorist popping in here, of cultural diffusion, which is one of the ways in which folk culture moves through different communities. And so you have these interactions between different groups of people. And they start borrowing or, or learning or adapting from, you know, these other cultures and learning, learning from them, but also adapting their food ways, their um, instruments, uh, ways of building houses, all these kinds of things. They intermingle. And that's, 
you know, that speaks to the whole idea of, you know, the, the sort of the cultural stew of America and how like we have all these different cross-cultural uh, shared culture things between very distinct and different groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, from the opposite direction, we have cultural diffusion of the dulcimer coming from the north. So it, folklorists think that the dulcimer originated in the Shenandoah River Valley near Pennsylvania and Virginia. With German and, and Yeah, it, it's Northern believed European to have groups. evolved out of a German zither called the Scheiholt, mm-hmm. um, which if you look it up, it's more of a boxy instrument than a mountain dulcimer, but very similar. It has three to four strings. You know, you play a drone. So dulcimers weren't really common in Southern Appalachia until kind of this folk revival movement of the 40s into the 60s. Um, And it was, like you said, popularized by Gene Ritchie. But in the late 19th and 20th centuries, the mountain dulcimers that were played in, you know, the Appalachian mountains in Virginia and Pennsylvania were the ones that were associated with that more romantic idea of Appalachia. And, And you can see why, like if you look at sort of what goes into building a fiddle, Versus exactly. what goes into building a dulcimer. A dulcimer is a very simple instrument, and it's a it's sort of a gateway, good gateway instrument for, uh, you know, future luthiers or instrument makers. But for you know a community, somebody, you know, with a little know how on woodworking could construct this instrument, and it was also very easy to learn how to play. Yeah, well, and same thing with the banjo. Right. I mean, when you're talking about a gourd banjo, or if you look up the styles of a mountain banjo, they aren't nearly as complicated as the banjos that we think of today you know with the the metal pieces but they were just simply carved out of wood and had um skin heads that were made out of tan groundhog or cat hides (laughs) you know yeah we'll get into that with stanley and the cat hides but uh, that's kind of a funny another one of the musicians we're featuring today tedra Harmon. he used elmer's glue for part of his panchos right so these instruments are much simpler to construct than a fiddle would be um so that's kind of why their diffusion was a little bit more rapid right. uh, once they were finally coming into this region. Yes. So the two musicians that we're going to feature today are Stanley Hicks and Tadra Harmon. Um, and I just want to introduce Tadra Harmon a little bit since we've already talked a little bit about um, Stanley Hicks. So unfortunately, Tadra Harmon died right after um, the students interviewed him for the Foxfire magazine. And so when they put this record together, they dedicated It Still Lives to the memory of Tadra Harmon. So there's a really nice piece at the very beginning of the insert in, with the album um, that talks about Tadra. And he was a pretty interesting guy. He did a lot of woodworking. We have interviews with him on making sleds. Um, I think there's a knife making um, interview. But the musical instrument one really stands out because of some of these you know, techniques that he used to construct his instruments. So he started making banjos when he was about 13, I think. Um, And like most musical instrument makers in Appalachia, they wanted to play an instrument but couldn't afford it. And so they decided to just make their own. So he made a pretty simple banjo. And from there, just every time, made it better and better and better. Um, So he made everything from scratch. He hand carved everything. He didn't really use power tools. Um, His wife said in an interview that when you bought a handmade banjo from Tedra, you bought one that was made um, homemade everything except for the strings. Um, (laughs) That was the only thing that he would purchase. But like I said earlier, he would go and hunt groundhog or deer or cats and tan the hides himself. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, he would, he would put it over the drum head and it would tighten as it dried. 
but he made traditional mountain banjos um, and everything was made out of wood um, and he used hardwoods which was pretty common um, and then hand carved the pegs so he put a lot of work and effort into them but he didn't really make them to market and sell he just kind of made them for friends or for people who would ask for them um, and that's pretty characteristic I think of most of the mountain musical instrument makers that we have recorded in the Foxfire series is that you know, it was word of mouth. They did it as a hobby or they did it as a profession, but they didn't really advertise themselves. Right. So there was a lot of pride in their workmanship and they kind of took took the time that they needed to make it to make it the best possible. Um, so we're going to start off with a really great song from Tetra Harmon called Pretty Polly. Um, it's known as a murder ballad. Um, it traditionally has lyrics to it. This recording does not. So after we play the music, we'll talk a little bit about why this is a murder ballad, what a murder ballad is, <laughs> and what some of the lyrics are so that you can get a sense of um, how it might be if it was sung. disappointed that it wasn't sung for their album it was pretty common though for musicians to either play or sing right um we yeah. have very few recordings of people doing both right. i think stanley's probably one of the few that right yeah had some vocalization with it but it um, is unfortunate so i would invite the listeners to go this if you if you were to go online and look up pretty poly the most famous probably rendition of it was ralph stanley um and that was, you know, in the last 60 years or so. So Pretty Polly is a part of this longer ballad tradition that dates back, you know, back to the United Kingdom and England, Scotland to, you know, the 10th century. Um, the ballad tradition is um, a narrative song tradition um, that does a lot of different things. So, and then specifically pretty Polly is, as Cami noted before is a murder ballad. Um, so I'm trying to think of the best way to come at this. Let's, let's start with in the previous episode, I referenced a folklorist named William Bascom and we talked about sort of the four functions of folklore. So there's this entertainment element and there's this validation element that we discussed in that episode but then there's these two other elements that we label as sort of to educate and then to control. So for 
pre-modern communities, one of their most valuable resources was their human capital. Um, it was important that you had a strong community of people to handle the work of the community, to make sure that all the pieces are there and everything's moving along. So you needed population. And your population starts and ends with your female population, with your women in your community. And I know this is like just like skin crawl levels <laughs> discussion, but um, there was a, a, a large importance placed on protecting young women in the community and made sure that they stay within the community, right? So um, there is this tradition of there's Lady Isabel and the Elven Knight. That's a very early um, traditional ballad that's a murder ballad that speaks to the date, like sort of a warning to young women, don't go into the woods alone because the woods are are full, like in real time, like in real life, outlaws. Um, there's all kinds of opportunities for, for kidnappings and this sort of thing. But to make it even scarier, it's also full of demons and devils and... Uh, magical creatures who can charm a woman and uh, and ultimately will murder them. So um, when we talk about Pretty Polly, Pretty Polly is what we would note as a Native American in that it originated in America, a Native American murder ballad. But it's descendant from a longer tradition of murder ballads that occur in Scotland and England. And one of my favorites is the house carpenter or the demon lover. And they're, they're, the, the, the narrative, um, sort of the storyline is very similar between these two. Uh, and there's a really great, you can look up a, um, there's a really great version of The House Carpenter by Bob Dylan. Um, and, and early in Dylan's career, he was doing a lot of sort of folk ballads and that sort of thing. So in both instances, you have a young woman who is approached by some kind of male figure. Now, whether or not this is a man or some sort of supernatural creature, it's, you know, it's either sort of alluded to or it says it outright. Um, in, um, in the house carpenter, you have the return of this, of this woman's lover, like from when she was younger, she had a lover and he's gone off to see or something and never comes back. And then in the meantime, she marries a house carpenter and they have a child that, and then all of a sudden this guy shows up again from her past and is like, he seduces her away from her husband and her child and gets her on a boat and they go out in the ocean. And next thing she knows, she's on a boat to hell, quite literally. Like he's promising her, you know, bright lights and, you know, beauty and all this stuff. And she sees the light of heaven on one shore and she points it out he says yeah that's the light of heaven but we're not going there and then she sees this darkened shore and she says what's that and he says that's hell that's where we're a going very straightforward message <laughs> it is and it's designed to be it's designed to be so that's you know when we get again those four elements of folklore like what this stuff does the purpose of those kinds of of ballads or narratives is to scare them straight I mean, that, that's really what it's about. You know, and we, we can jump over to Germany and talk about Brothers Grimm. You know, why, why are we have all these tales of children being eaten by witches and this kind of thing? Because kids, you're not supposed to go in the woods alone. Because we have to protect you because human capital is our most valuable resource. So Pretty Polly is, again, in that. Um, 
you can uh, go online and look up the lyrics. Um, but it's a very much in the same vein as the house carpenter where you've got, you know, you know again, this young woman, she's approached by a, a man seemingly, um, he promises her all this wonderful stuff, takes her off over the mountains into the hills. And then she start when she starts getting nervous, like she's, you know, starts getting the sense of like, uh Oh, he kills her and, and, and buries her in a shallow grave in the woods. So again, what, you know, why would you tell a young person or why would you sing this song in your community? Well, it's, it's for a purpose. And the purpose is to remind your young people to avoid strangers, to avoid being alone, going out to alone, to avoid, you know, for young women to avoid the promises and the seduction of, you know, men um, outside the context of of a, of a marriage that is maybe arranged or a marriage that is um, condoned by your by your parents and the parents of the person that you're marrying. Yeah, and I, you know, I find it interesting that the, the melody here plays so many roles with the song. You know, mm-hmm. it's obviously helping um, instill that into a memory by uh, assigning a tune to it, but also you know, just listening to the music and not having heard the lyrics before I listened to the music, you still get this really haunting sense and melancholic sense from just listening to the music. And so it's really powerful how they're able to take this story, this really depressing story and, you know, still convey a very similar message by using music alone. And so it's really interesting how powerful that becomes. Yeah. Well, our next two tracks will be a little bit more positive. <laughs> so start out with the bad news first, move into the happy stuff. And that stuff. was something completely different. Yeah, so yeah. now we're going to move into two tracks. The first one is called Sourwood Mountain. And this is a really old, very common song. Um, a lot of the musicians that were interviewed by Foxfire had a version of the song that they played. One of the musicians, Leonard Glenn, said jokingly, um, that this song's been around longer than he could remember. It's one that Noah had in the ark at the time of the flood. Um, he said that Noah had a banjo in the ark and I got it yonder in the other room. The one he had me pick was Sourwood Mountain. So it's found throughout Southern Appalachian mountains and into the Ozarks. And it's primarily used as a dance tune with a fiddle and a banjo. Um, but you can really feel like kind of the jovial nature of it. So it's a really great song. Um, and we'll play it for you now. See if we can play a little Sourwood Mountain, Bob. Old Hamlet. Thank you. 
So as you heard, that was played on a banjo. Um, I just want to touch back on something we talked about earlier, whereas the fiddle was considered the mountain instrument. There's actually no fiddle music on It Still Lives. Which not, is... not a lick. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Good job. Um, so we're hoping to, at some point in the distant future, re-release another album that'll have a little bit more of a diverse selection of music that will include a lot more fiddle tunes. Because we, we've got some good fiddle music. Yeah, we've got a lot of really archive. good fiddle music, which we'll feature in another episode, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit about the style that Tedra played this song in. Um, it's something known as a hammer lick, and if you go back to the very beginning of the song, he mentions that he's playing in a hammer lick style. This was something that was found in Northwest North Carolina and um, down in Virginia as well. It's not so common here in North Georgia, um, but both Tedra and Stanley Hicks were from very close areas. They're both from uh, North Carolina near the Tennessee border, and they both play kind of in this similar style. And so the hammer lick is the strumming of the fingers down, but with an upward pick of the thumb, which gives it kind of that unique cadence. Tadra actually attributed this to be a very old style of playing music. Yeah, I think it's related to claw hammer style, um, which is common in that area. About 20 years ago, um, when I was still an undergrad, I did an interview with a woman named Roberta Voiles from Vengeance Creek, North Carolina, which is near Brasstown. And uh, she still played in that style. Uh, which for me was rare because my, at that point, my experience with banjo in regards to bluegrass or old time stream music was really the Earl Scruggs sort of three finger roll method, which is a lot. Yeah. It's, there's, it's faster. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more melody, I think in that. Yeah. It, it definitely has like that different like feel to the song. Yeah. Clawheimer feels, uh, you know. Banjo is a percussion instrument. That's mm-hmm. something too. Like in the West African tradition, it is a it is considered part of the percussion family. So there's that element in it that's you see more of that in the claw hammer style than versus than yeah more modern got that striking. That's going right. On. That's right. Um, but I I always feel like there's like a little bit of the breath that comes in with the upward mm-hmm. kick of the thumb yeah, yeah. instead of you know what, you know I play guitar very badly but you know everything is down it's down and so for me like that upward Unless motion you're ska, and then it's <laughs> <laughs> oh man that takes me back yeah <laughs> i've never done that um i always failed at playing the upward motion because it always felt awkward and uncomfortable for right. me but hearing hearing tedra Harmon play it it feels yeah. very natural and smooth yep so now we're going to move into our final track um, by Stanley Hicks, which is known as Fox Chase. And this is actually a Cante fable, which is a narrative style of music. Um, and so we're just going to play it and we'll talk a little bit about it afterwards. If you're out in the woods anywhere and, and you've appeared, you know, camping out and appeared, you sleep with one eye open and unshit. <laughs> sleep with one eye open and unshit. Well, I'll warm it up a little bit on this, and then I'll take off. I'll call them up so you can get them going.
hat over my head. about this song too I, I consider it it's a it's a uh, trickster tale in instrumental right that's a great way to put it yeah it's a it's a it's an animal trickster tale so you know when we talk about animal tricksters a lot of people think about brother rabbit um, the fox is a, is a common trickster animal in stories and fables um, and in this case you've got the story of a fox out out foxing <laughs> right the hunting dogs yeah and so if you didn't pick up on it the high higher pitched faster notes are the, the scuttling of the fox and then those like bow bow notes are the hounds yeah. barking after the fox <laughs> i hate to say this but what sound does the fox make well there it is <laughs> like, it's it's on the banjo there and stanley does a really great job of doing that i mean and it does if you've ever heard a fox it's pretty good but yeah you've got this it's this really great trickster tale told through instrumentation with the, all the highs and lows that you would expect from a trickster tale where you've got this very cunning animal outsmarting the the doofus hounds. Yeah, and what's really great about folk music, and especially Stanley's style, is that you can feel how open the structure is and how much it'll, room it allows for individual creativity, just in the same sense that telling a story. Mm-hmm. You know, music's just a different way of communicating that. And I think this is a really great example of how you can interweave different aspects of folklore um, and bring them together to make this really engaging 
um, story. And as a style, too, I, you know, I've encountered, uh, I hate to like bring up Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs again, but uh, there's a really great album of theirs where they're playing at Carnegie Hall, and uh, and Earl Scruggs does, tells a story about um, a little boy wanting a glass of water. And he's talking to the banjo as though the banjo is the child and he's the father. And he's like, what do you want more? You know, and he, he kind of plays out, I want a drink of water, you know, on the banjo. You know, you'd have to listen to it. It's almost like an extension of their voice. It like, is. You know, it talking, is. Like, it's but, almost like ventriloquism, but with an instrument. Yeah. And then, you know, he said, you want a drink of water? And he goes, uh-huh, like that. <laughs> and he said, don't say uh-huh, say yes, sir. And then it goes into sort of this, this, uh, this reel. But, uh, it's really great. And that was the first time I encountered it before listening to Stanley Hicks do it with the Fox. And I just, I thought it was brilliant. The other really great thing I love about this song and the other two songs that we've played, honestly, is that they have, again, this more informal structure to the song um, since they are kind of storytelling, but also entertainment. And I think that's more representative of a different style of learning music. Um, I personally encountered musical instruments first as a child in the Suzuki method, <laughs> learning how to play the violin, which is incredibly rigid, incredibly structured. Um, you know, there are very there are certain songs that you play at certain stages and you have to learn certain steps along the way to play the next song. You know, there isn't really this idea of like fluidity or individual expression or openness until you master the skills. Right. Whereas when we're talking about sharing music or learning music in Appalachia, people are literally going to these musicians' homes and sitting at their feet, right. you know, and just watching them play. You know, yeah. most people didn't teach. They wouldn't teach. But you learned by watching, by listening. Um, and so you would kind of teach yourself by encountering the instrument independently but you're also immersing yourself in this really rich tradition um, and kind of learning just simply through exposure um, and I think that creates a different musical tradition than maybe most of us are familiar with today yeah yeah um, learning through imitation like watching I mean and there, there's a there's a there's sort of a modern equivalent to that now like you know YouTube for a lot of years became sort of this vehicle for for people wanting to learn how to play music and so they would there would be videos where you could watch how somebody would you know finger out a particular song or whatnot and you would just watch and imitate it and that you know that heart, it's just a it's just a modern take on what is very much a intimate um, folkloric process of learning by listening watching and and uh, imitating yeah it's yeah. it's it's fascinating it's really cool so even though these songs don't have any fiddle in them i do think that they are really great examples of the mountain styles of music both here in, in georgia and into north carolina so if you are interested at all in these musical recordings um in learning more about the artists that we featured today and other artists interviewed by foxfire definitely check out um the third foxfire book it's got really great articles on banjo and dulcimer making um, including Stanley Hicks and Tadra Harmon, but also other um, instrument makers um, like the Glens and uh, Robert Mize, who is a really well-known dulcimer maker. 
And also, too, I want to encourage everybody to, to use our Twitter feed to ask us questions. Like, the thing that's something that we want to develop with our podcast is, like, where you get an opportunity to tweet us a question through the It Still Lives uh, Twitter, which is at Still Lives when the number one. Um, but if you if you search It Still Lives on Twitter, you'll find us. Um, but send us your questions. Also, like, at this point suggestions yeah tell us what you guys want to hear <laughs> like we said we have like two thousand interviews that we can draw from yep. so if you're familiar with foxfire if you're familiar with mountain culture um if there's a specific topic that you're interested in let us know about it and we'll do do our best to put together some research and get some audio out to you um you know also reach out to us at our email which is it still lives at foxfire.org or head on over to our website and check out some of the additional content that we've posted under our news and journal feed. Um, we look forward to having you join us next time. We're going to be featuring some clips from the very first interview with Aunt Erie Carpenter. For those of you who have read the first Foxfire book, yes, this is the Hogshead episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll get into uh, Aunt Erie and just what an amazing person she was. So we're really excited to bring that to you as well. Yeah, we'll tell you a, a pretty good story about her knife. <laughs> so please join us next time and we'll see you then. Hey. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>